Acts chapter 1, look with me please in verse number 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we come before your holy and inspired word. Encouraged by the song we just sang, that Christ will win the prize for which he died. We thank you then that we are empowered by the Spirit to go forth as a church and to preach the gospel. Help us, Lord, in these next few moments as we look at your word. Inspire us, motivate us, compel us, give us faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in October 10th, 2021, two years ago, we began the book of Acts. You have sat through about 45 sermons, some longer than others, and you made it. And here we are, two years later, at the end. Well, actually, we finished it a few weeks ago, but now we are summarizing this book. A lot has changed in two years. Two years ago, we were in a different uh, building. Our church was smaller. Two years later, there are new faces, new building. Things have changed in your lives, my life. And I wonder, as we come to the end of an inspired book, what have we learned? How has our time in this text affected the decisions that we've made? The faith that we have in Christ? the way that we've reacted to the things that God has done in our life over the last two years. If we believe that the Scriptures are inspired, and thus the Word of God, and we've sat under its proclamation for two years, then it should go without saying that it should have some impact in our lives. Perhaps many of us were convicted, as we saw in the book of Acts, the the faith of Peter and John and Paul and Stephen. And we recognized how much we don't add up, and we rely upon the Spirit of God to help us. Perhaps you were encouraged, as time and again the Lord Jesus promised to His church miracles and victories, and He delivered on His promise every time. Perhaps you were re-energized or you reprioritized the things in your life because you see in the book of Acts that the church and the Great Commission is the priority of believers in Christ. Perhaps throughout these last two years you were reminded, reminded of just how great God is, how sinful the world is, and how powerful the gospel is. And I think many of us would probably say all of the above. As we have read the book of Acts for two years, we have been convicted, encouraged, re-energized, and reminded. And I pray that it would not be for naught, that we as individuals and as a body, as a church, would be empowered by these words to be stronger in unity, to be stronger in faith, and be stronger in our proclamation of the gospel. I've entitled the series, Acts, Spirit-Empowered Witnesses in a Sin-Empowered World. It's refreshing to have that on the screen today because on sermon audio, you're not allowed to have that many words in the title. So it's cool to actually see the the whole name. 
And my proposition is, and you can see in italicized words there, that if we were to summarize the book of Acts, and there's many themes we can talk about, it would be something like this. The Great Commission is empowered by the Holy Spirit as the church proclaims the kingship of the risen Jesus to all the world. So what is the book of Acts about? It's about that. The Great Commission is empowered by the Holy Spirit as the church proclaims the kingship of the risen Jesus to all the world. And embedded in those words are five major themes. And you see them also on the screen. The task of the Great Commission, the Holy Spirit, the church, risen King Jesus, and all nations. Now, of course, there are many other things in the book of Acts. The book of Acts talks about miracles. The book of Acts talks about tongues. The book of Acts talks about baptism and all sorts of exploits. Deacons and leaders and missions. But I want to focus on these five things today, as I think these are the most important things and the most recurring things that you find in its uh, 28 chapters. So let's begin then with the task. I began this sermon as I began the series by reading in verse 8. Jesus gave a task to his disciples. He says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission. Now the Bible doesn't use that term, but we call it, theologians have called it that for the last you know, several generations. Because Jesus gave his church many commissions. But one stands out as the Great Commission. The thing that he left us on earth to do. And that is to preach the gospel to every creature. In Matthew 28, the gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus saying, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commended you. And then here in Acts 1.8, Jesus repeats it, albeit in different words, to be a witness. So what's the purpose of church? Is it to... Just have potluck lunches, to bless the community, to have a choir, to do the blessing of the animals that some churches do? Or is the task of the church very clear that we ought to be witnesses for Jesus throughout the world? Well, that's what the book of Acts brings us to. It it reminds us that this is the mission. Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives the mission. And then if we walk through the book of Acts we can find the church completing this mission time and again. You may want to turn here, but for sake of time, you could write these references down. Acts 5.42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Would that that would be said of us. When people think of our church, not just when we gather on Sundays, but all the members and all the regular attenders of Bread of Life, Risen Savior Church, boy, those people just can't stop talking about Jesus. Acts 5.42 says they did not cease teaching and preaching. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. In Acts chapter 8, there was a persecution that scattered the church. And I remember this sermon because I was so blessed by just thinking about how 
on one hand, it'd be tragic if people were to come in here and, and threaten us with violence and we all had to scatter. But the Bible tells us in Acts 8 that the, the people, not just the elders and apostles, but the people took advantage of that scattering and everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So I don't know about you, but if, if something like that happened to our assembly, I think I would be scared. I'd be wondering about my rights. I would be wanting to press charges against those who came in here. And not that those things are necessarily wrong, but the, what the Holy Spirit is showing us in the book of Acts is that the priority was always, we've got to get this word to as many people as we can. And then Acts 15, Acts 15, verse 35 Acts 15, verse 35 says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. That is just a small sampling of what you see throughout the book of Acts. In chapter 1, Jesus says, go and preach the gospel. Then chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 15, we can go on and on. What is the church caught doing every time? Preaching the gospel. What are they doing in the synagogues? Preaching the gospel. What are they doing that get them into trouble? Preaching the gospel. Why was Paul on trial? Because he was preaching the gospel. It's clear that the early church knew her priority. And the priority was the great commission given to them by our Lord Jesus Christ. The great commission is preaching the gospel of salvation to every creature and when someone then believes, that person is brought into communion with the church through baptism and discipleship as God makes this new community that will one day be perfect with him in heaven. Churches then plant other churches in other areas. We've seen that all throughout the book of Acts in this island and that island in this city and that city. And basically God is saying this to his people and repeat that until Jesus comes back. That's what we need to do. That's a pretty tall order, though, isn't it? The world is bigger than what the first century Christians ever imagined. There are more people than we could ever think of or count. And lurking behind all the things that we see, all the evil in the world, are demons and principalities and powers. People have stony hearts. People dwell in unbelief. People are dead in their sins. And we're to preach to them so that they would be made alive. That is a tall order. That brings us to the second point. We don't do it in our strength, do we? Jesus promised in Acts 1, 8, when he gave this tall order, he said, but you will receive power. And that power is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will empower us so that what you do when you preach, coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, can work miracles in the hearts of those who hear. Just a quick search on an internet Bible um, website of the word Holy Spirit yields in the most 35 times in one of the Gospels, but in the book of Acts, 70 times. Clearly, the book of Acts points us to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. 
Turn with me to Ezekiel. Hold your place in Acts and please turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Now the Holy Spirit is eternal. He always resided with the Father and the Son in heaven. And throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of the Holy Spirit coming down and working things in the lives of believers in the one true God. But it is in, precisely in the new covenant that God makes through Christ with his people that the Holy Spirit is given and promised to us in a full sense. And that is a fulfillment of what God promised to his people all the way back in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 23 to 28. Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, he's talking to Israel, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. What a promise the Lord is giving to his people in the midst of so much rebellion and adversity. But it is in the book of Acts that we see the fulfillment of what God promised in the book of Ezekiel. Many generations later. You know, if you could summarize the Old Testament, really it would be this. It's just a vicious cycle of sin and rebellion. God sends a prophet to warn the Israelites, you better stop that or something's going to happen. Assyria is going to come. Egypt's going to come. They don't listen to the prophets. They're stiff-necked. They plug their ears. And sometimes they even stone their very prophets to death. Then, after they get taken away in captivity, or their cities get destroyed, finally they cry out to the Lord. And God, who is under no obligation to save them, remembers the covenant he made with Abraham. And reminds them, it's not because of your goodness, but because of my name and my covenant that I will save you. And God saves his people. And then the people come back to God and say, God, we will obey you again. And then what happens? Same thing. They fall into rebellion, idolatry. And this cycle just continues to repeat all throughout the, the chronicles and the kings and the judges and Nehemiah. And, and so when God comes to Ezekiel and he says, there's coming a day. Well, I will put my spirit in your heart and cause you to walk in my ways. It's as if God is saying, you couldn't do it on your own. I will do it for you. I will give you the Holy Spirit. God himself will so dwell in your heart and give you such a new heart. You will no longer try to obey me in your flesh, but you will obey me because your taste buds have changed. Your desires have changed. And now you desire from the heart true obedience and faith in me. 
When we get to the book of Acts and the apostles preach this message, the Holy Spirit comes down on the people and they begin to believe. And when you see them go from unbelief to belief, you are literally witnessing a miracle of the Holy Spirit taking hearts of stone and making them into hearts of flesh. So look with me in Acts again, chapter 2. And we're not going to go through this whole thing, but always um, with, with that Old Testament background, looking at the, uh, the story of Pentecost, which is a fulfillment of many prophecies. Just look at Acts chapter 2 with me, verses 1 to 8. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues in the Spirit as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember what Ezekiel said about the nations? Verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, when you skip to the sort of the end of that chapter, or end of that um, sermon that Peter then stands up and preaches, if you skip to verse 40, and with many other words, verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, how could the words of Peter, the man who denied Jesus three times, this bumbling fisherman, how could he preach these words that had such an effect on people that 2,000 of them from different places become saved, baptized, and added to the church in one day? It's because of the Holy Spirit. It's because of the Holy Spirit. And then again, just like we saw with the Great Commission, you can walk through all the book of Acts. You know, traditionally, Acts was called the Acts of the Apostles. Really, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. God is the one receiving the glory. In chapter 4, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. At the end of chapter 4, the believers pray for boldness, and the Holy Spirit fills the room, and then they preach with boldness. In chapter 6, deacons were elected Men who were filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit leads Philip to go find an Ethiopian eunuch and pray with him and preach the gospel to him. The Spirit led Peter. The Spirit separated Paul and Barnabas for missionary work. My point is, every single thing we see in the book of Acts is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that at the end of the day, whatever results we see, God gets the glory. The Spirit of God is not some mystical, impersonal force. He is a person, and He works through God's appointed means. And those means, we now go to the next point, are the church. The Holy Spirit works through the church. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. So far we've seen the Great Commission is a theme throughout the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit empowers the Great Commission. 
But as you see in the definition on the screen, the Great Commission is powered by the Holy Spirit as the church proclaims. So don't take these two points and individualize them. It's just me and the Holy Spirit. Because if there's one thing that's clear in the book of Acts, is that we're not alone. That God calls us to a community, the church. In Ephesians chapter number 3, verse 1, here's what Paul says about the mystery of the church. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Keep your place there, but let me stop for a moment and say, in the Old Testament, clearly God hinted at this. There were definitely Rahab and the Ninevites, and we can, Ruth, right? There were Gentiles that came into the faith. God also reminded his people again and again, you are to be the light for the nations. But it wasn't until the New Testament, when all of that began to be revealed, that the Gentiles wouldn't just benefit from knowing God, they would be partakers of the same promises as the Jews. Jews and Gentiles, no distinction, together in one body. Not two, but one. And what do we call that? The church. Now look again in Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How is God's manifold wisdom demonstrated not only to the world, but to the rulers in heavenly places? By the church. By seeing Jew and Gentile, every tribe, tongue, and nation together in one body, brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit, by believing in the same message, the gospel, by believing in the same person, Jesus Christ. Now, if that is referred to by Paul as the mystery hidden for ages and now revealed, I would venture to say it's a pretty big deal. God makes a big deal about his church. And the book of Acts proves just how big of a deal it is. The church becomes the temple of God, the dwelling place between God and his people. Back in the book of Acts, if you'll go back with me in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, it's very clear. The beginning of chapter 2 is Pentecost. And of course, we want to talk about Pentecost and and tongues and languages and, and all these miracles. But what's the result of Pentecost? What happens as a result of that great miracle of tongues? Well, you find it at the end of chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship 
to the breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now recognize verse 42 doesn't seem to be so histrionic. So it's not fireworks, right? At the end of the day, it's just a bunch of people coming together. They've got doctrine, teaching, prayers, breaking bread, fellowship. It's what we do every Sunday, right? We, we hear teaching. We break bread together. We fellowship together. We pray together. But that is the result of the miracle that preceded it. God poured out His Spirit upon all of those Jews that day to gather them together to form a church. Don't underestimate, my brothers and sisters, the importance of the church. It is a miracle that we are together. It is a miracle that God is calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come together to praise Him and to fellowship together. The church. What does the church do? It then sends people out. The church in in many ways is like your your training grounds. What you hear from this pulpit, what you hear in discipleship relationships ought to then be brought out into the world. Your places of work, your family. And if the church is strong and united in doing the right things, preaching Jesus Christ, representing Him as His body in the power of the Spirit, who can stop us? Now as the church goes out, And preaches this message that was given to us. What specifically are we preaching? That brings us to the fourth point. The message that we must proclaim is risen King Jesus. Risen King Jesus. In Peter's Pentecost sermon, in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Over and again, and time would fail me to go through every sermon in the book of Acts. But it is emphasized that Jesus is risen. When Paul goes into the synagogues, he proclaims that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, and he is risen. Paul, when he stands on trial, says, the reason I'm even here is because of the hope of the resurrection. All of which is in line with the Messianic prophecies. And what this tells us, brothers and sisters, is that the resurrection is not an add-on. It is part and parcel of the gospel. One of the reasons why we're changing our name to Risen Savior Church is to remind us of that. Yes, Christ died, of course. The atoning sacrifice on the cross. But when you are telling other people about the good news of Jesus, don't leave out the resurrection. I think sometimes we do that. Or we just kind of add it on. Now, he, he rose three days later, don't worry. 
No, no. His resurrection is what saves us. The Bible says he was raised for our justification. Because he was risen, we will be risen with him. Because he was risen, we have resurrection power by the Spirit in our hearts. Because he was risen, he's the first fruits of the new creation. Every time someone comes to Christ, their old self is dead. Their new self begins to live because Christ conquered death for us. Because he's risen, we don't have to fear death. We know that beyond the grave, we get to see him face to face. He is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, he will raise up on the last day. The resurrection is not an add-on. And because he's risen and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he is the true king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. God has highly exalted him. And when you read through the book of Acts, you see this theme over and over again. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Jesus is king, not Agrippa, not Felix, not Festus, but Jesus Christ. And of course, the authorities saw this as a threat to their order. This is not a battle cry of of an insurrection as though we are going to take up arms and take over the government in the name of Jesus. But it's to say that we who have bowed the knee to Christ, we serve a master who is higher than anyone in this world. And when it comes between serving God or man, we must always choose to serve God every time. Because Jesus is king. He is sovereign. He's in control. And his kingdom is different. It's not a kingdom that rules with an iron fist or by sword. It doesn't advance by force. We don't get converts by threatening people with violence. People are added to the kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. Even that song we sang, O Church, Arise... Maybe you caught it. An army strong whose battle cry is love. What army, you know, shouts love, love, love? It's kind of weird. But it's the love of God. That's how we advance the kingdom. Because he is risen. And he is victorious. And he's the king. And who is it then? Who gets to be part of this amazing eternal kingdom ruled by the king Wherein dwells righteousness? The last point. All nations. All nations. If there's anything about the book of Acts that we learn as well, I think I've said that for every point. If there's anything about the book of Acts, it's this. Well, there's like five major themes. But it's that the gospel is to go forth to every creature, period. There's not a country in this world that we say, well, not them. Not a culture that we say, well, not these people. Jonah tried that. Didn't work out, did it? And so in the book of Acts, we see Jew and Gentile. We see people from all nations. We see the ends of the earth. Verse 8 of chapter 1, Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 28, Paul says, and so we came to Rome. At that time, that was the ends of the earth for him. In the book of Acts, we see the Jews come to Christ, the God-fearers come to Christ, the Pharisees, the Romans, all those under the preaching of Pentecost, an Ethiopian eunuch, those in Antioch, Jerusalem, Samaria, the people of Malta. We even see kings and governors confronted with the gospel. Every tribe, every socioeconomic status, every corner of the world, the gospel is to be carried forth by the church in the power of the Holy Spirit to every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
The book of Acts teaches us then that there is no place in the church for racism, for judgmentalism, for prejudice in the kingdom of God. The message is for everyone because everyone is a sinner. Everyone stands condemned before God. Everyone needs salvation. And Christ can save everyone who comes to him by faith. What the book of Acts demonstrates is that what Jesus promised in chapter 1 will be fulfilled and was fulfilled throughout this book. In a sense, Acts is a success story, but it's also an unfinished story. It's a success story because everything the prophets testified of was manifest in Christ. And when Christ gave promises, they came true. When he told Paul, you're going to go stand before Rome, he did. When, when he told Peter, you're going to escape this prison, he did. There wasn't one promise that didn't come true. It's a success story. But it's also an unfinished story. Because so long as Jesus has not yet come back, we are still to take up the mantle of what the early church did. And so if you can get to the next slide, the application is this, that the timeless truths in the book of Acts still remain in effect. Yes, our context is different. Our languages are different. We're in a modern society. The church may look different, but these five timeless truths remain unchanged. The Great Commission is still empowered by the Holy Spirit as the church proclaims the kingship of the risen Jesus to all the world. And so, number one, the mission is still the priority. It's still the priority that churches plant churches, that churches preach the gospel, that we evangelize together and individually, that when you leave this building, you leave as a missionary to your places of work, to your neighborhood, to your family. There are many things throughout the Christian world that threaten the purity of this, as you know. There's been a rising movement of theonomy and Christian nationalism in our circles that I would just urge you to be aware of. And there are many things in that particular teaching that's very popular on the internet that we can pick apart. But I think if there's one thing that I would suggest you be aware of when you listen to people on that, in that circle is that they add to the Great Commission things that are not part of the Great Commission. So when you hear things like the Great Commission is having big families so that your kids can grow up and sort of be an army that takes over the world for Christ... Having great big families is a blessing, but it is not part of the Great Commission. Building Christian institutions. We need Christian movies. We need Christian books. We need Christian hospitals. We need Christian schools. Again, those things can be a blessing. They could even be a, a, a result of the Great Commission, but they are not the Great Commission. Or we need to elect Christian Officials, We need Christian president, Christian senator, Christian governor. Again, if, if the Lord would put people in office who run by Christian values, praise the Lord. But you're not getting that from the Bible. You will find that in the book of Acts. It is not part of the Great Commission. Beware these people 
who infiltrate. And I, I know there's other threats like the social justice and things like that, but that's not much of a threat for us. In our circles, this rising theonomy has threatened the purity of the Great Commission. And so I warn you, with all love and as a pastor, to beware of those people who put the cart before the horse. The Great Commission is preaching the gospel, baptizing people who believe the gospel, discipling people who've been baptized, forming a church, and then when the time comes, planting more churches. That is how the gospel advances in this world. Secondly, the Holy Spirit still works powerfully. The Holy Spirit still works powerfully. Another thing in Reformed circles that sometimes you don't hear a lot about is the Holy Spirit. Now, the men who went to the conference a few weeks ago, we got a good amount of teaching on the Holy Spirit. And praise God for that. And sometimes I think we react so much against the excesses of the charismatic movement that we don't talk about the Holy Spirit as much as we ought. Certainly, we should reject the health and wealth, prosperity gospel we see on TV. Those faith healers who are driving around in nice cars and private jets, who for some strange reason don't work in hospitals. We do believe that the office of apostle has ceased. And therefore, there is no one alive today who could say, I have the gift of healing. I have the gift of this or that. At the same time, and this may be different if we survey everyone in the room, Bread of Life has been kind of an anomaly, because even though we do preach expository sermons and we're reformed in in our soteriology, for 20-something years, we have at least identified ourselves as not cessationists. That means that the arguments that people give to say all these miracles and tongues and dreams stop, we're not convinced by those arguments. At least I'm not, and I know some of the eldership is not either. Yet we are functionally cessationists because you come to our church and you don't hear people speaking in tongues and you don't hear, there's no healing line and things like that. So what's the point? Why am I talking like this? It's to say this. Do not put God in a box. The Holy Spirit is still God. He will always be God and he will always do miracles. If someone is sick, we can pray for healing and believe that God will heal. If we send missionaries around the world where the gospel wasn't preached and they come back with reports of amazing things happening, we don't have to be incredulous. Now, of course, we want to check everything by Scripture because this is the only infallible guide. But in in our effort to do so, let us not be spooked out by the amazing things that the Holy Spirit can do. In the book of Acts... Every time the Holy Spirit did something miraculous, it was for one major reason, to advance the gospel. So it wasn't a dream about what job you should have, or what person you should date, or what stock to invest in. But it was to open people's eyes to see the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. And if the Lord is pleased to still use some of these means in some ways, we give him the glory for that. Brothers and sisters, whatever you think about these debates on cessationism and non-cessationism and tongues and all that, that's not the point. I want to encourage you to remember that when you preach the gospel, and I don't mean necessarily stand behind a pulpit and preach in a microphone or stand on the streets and preach, but when you give the gospel to anyone, you must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit 
convicts someone of sin, he is the one, and him alone, not your arguments, not your persuasiveness, is going to melt that heart of stone, turn it into a heart of flesh. So let's be motivated by the fact that God continues to pour out his spirit on his church. Thirdly, the church is still essential. That's a tough one for many of us in this day and age because we're so individualistic. We have our schedules, we have our agendas, we work, we work things around maybe sports or academics or our job, and then church. Well, you can't get that from the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, they met a lot. They met daily. They met in homes. They met in the synagogue. They met in the outer court of the temple. And what were they doing? Fellowshipping, breaking bread. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out, they weren't just sent out as mavericks. They were sent out from the church at Antioch. The deacons were appointed to serve the church. Aquila and Priscilla served the church at Ephesus. It was the church of Antioch that helped the church of Jerusalem. Do you see a pattern here? The idea of the maverick, the lone ranger Christian, does not exist in the scriptures. And even where there's maybe one person that's by himself, like the Ethiopian eunuch, you can't use that as an example. And I would assume that he would eventually find his way to a group of believers. And so, brothers and sisters, the church is still essential. This is where God works. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to try new trends. And you know, maybe if we just try this or that, yes, we could... We could adapt to our particular context, but the church still must do what the church is meant to do. So we still must fellowship with each other. Fellowship is a good thing. If you're here and you come to this church and every Sunday you're out as soon as the amen, I would encourage you, stick around. Know your brothers and sisters. I would encourage you who are members or regular attenders to get to know someone different even today. Make them feel at home. We still need good doctrine, right? In in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's why we teach. Why do we do this? Why am I standing here with an open Bible, right? This is the precedent that was set for us in the book of Acts. It's good doctrine that helps us to fight the lies of the world. We still need to break bread. We still need to come to the Lord's table. We still need to pray together and be devoted. And that's that that key word in Acts 2.42, devoted. They devoted themselves. Devotion means commitment. It, it takes sacrifice. Just like you and I would, if we really had a goal to make a certain amount of money or lose a certain amount of weight, we would be committed to that job, committed to the gym. But the believer's priority is commitment to God and his people first. And that is how the Word of God advances in this world. And it's clear in the book of Acts. Number four, the Lord Jesus still reigns. Brothers and sisters, it's really difficult sometimes as we look at the news to be encouraged. You know, many of us are aware that there's a war going on in Israel. And then on top of that, 2,000 plus people killed in Afghanistan as a result of a earthquake. Many things going on in the Middle East. Many things going on here. And sometimes we get discouraged. We need to be reminded that the Lord Jesus is still the risen King. 
And so we walk by faith, not by sight. His kingdom is here, and it's growing. He's among us. And the book of Acts demonstrates that. There were many times where Peter could have been discouraged while in prison, but the Lord stood by him. And Paul could have been discouraged for having to give an answer over and over about these frivolous charges, but the Lord stood by him. Remember, we've seen time and again that peace and joy don't necessarily come from the absence of conflict, but the presence of God. And so I'm not here to say, so long as he's king, your life will be a bed of roses, because you know that's not true. But because he's the risen king, he is with you. He is with us. He's empowering his church to do what he's called us to do. Take your eyes off of the world. Fix your eyes on King Jesus. And find your faith in him to move forward in the Great Commission. And finally, the world still needs to hear. The work of the Great Commission is not done until Jesus says that it is. I know there might be someone on the radio right now who's going to tell us exactly the time and date. He doesn't know. The work is not finished until the Lord says that it is. He says that the gospel will go to the whole world. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know so long as he hasn't yet come back or called us home, we go. We preach. We tell people about Jesus. And we do it while there's still time. If he were to come back tomorrow, and this were the last day we had, how many people would we call and say, you've got to come to Christ before it's too late? But sometimes we get lethargic, apathetic. We think we have more time than perhaps we do. And we don't know how much time we have. But we do know what our priorities should be while we have that time. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, where are you, where am I in this unfinished but successful story? The apostles have died out. Not all of us are going to be missionaries or elders or martyrs, prophets or preachers. But all of us are called to be involved. Just like Paul, Peter, and John preached, the elders oversaw, Barnabas encouraged, Priscilla and Aquila discipled, Luke chronicled the story. Everyone has a different task. Remember years ago, there were some people I knew who were involved in a particular ministry of the church, and they always referred to themselves as on the front lines. I don't know if there are front lines in the kingdom. I think if you're here today and you're greeting, you're just as essential. I think if you're hosting someone after church today and you're participating in fellowship according to the book of Acts, you are essential. Don't sell yourself short for those who are clicking and who made the slideshow and who are leading in music. And you might say, I came here, I don't have any job today. That's not true. You are part of the assembly of God giving praise and worship to him in the great choir that he's amassing for himself. We all have a role to play. Cleaning, emailing, nursery, whatever the case might be. The church works together to advance the cause at every part of the church. Every member of the church is an essential part of the church for the Great Commission. We're in this together. And so, the book of Acts, the Great Commission is empowered by the Holy Spirit as the church proclaims the kingship of the risen Jesus to all the world. Empowered by the Spirit to bring the gospel of King Jesus to every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
no matter how much we grow now in the next two years or shrink in the next two years, when we become independent or if we have to still wait, whether we park in this building or we meet in another building, whatever the next two years look like, whatever the next two decades look like, undoubtedly some of you will move away. Others will be added. No matter where we are, I pray that this will always be our mission. That, the, that we would see ourselves, no matter where God has us and what our church looks like, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the kingship of the risen Christ to all the world. Let us then, by the grace of God, continue this amazing story for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.